AMU. The following podcast is brought to you by American Military University on behalf of In Public Safety. Welcome to the podcast, In Public Safety Matters. I'm your host, Leishan Stelter. Those who work in law enforcement are well aware of the scrutiny officers face, both from the public and the media, especially when it comes to applying use of force measures. On today's show, we're going to talk about one way that's often cited uh, to reduce use of force incidents, and that's to improve officer training on de-escalation techniques. While such techniques can be effective in some situations, they can also present additional challenges and even cause confusion for officers about how they should react and respond in order to protect themselves as well as the public. My guest today has more than 20 years of law enforcement experience, along with 25 years in the U.S. military and civilian service. I'm joined today by Andrew Bell, who has been a criminal justice faculty member with American Military University since 2004. During his law enforcement career, Andy served as a patrol officer, detective, patrol agent, sergeant, community policing supervisor, school resource supervisor, and detective supervisor. He and co-author Bruce Razy recently published a book called Cops of Acadia, which is a fiction work based on real stories from their experiences in policing. Hi, Andy, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Alicia, and thanks for having me. So let's start our conversation by talking a little bit about the working environment for many officers. I was hoping that you could just talk briefly about some of the challenges that today's officers face when it comes to public oversight and media scrutiny and how this is really affecting the way that officers decide to apply use of force measures. Yeah, I, I actually was going to talk a little bit about the history of the use of force and how departments are dealing with that and how officers are also dealing with that. But uh, as I prepared for today, I saw an article that seemingly had nothing to do with policing and actually didn't mention police at all. That was about the fact that suicides in the United States are the leading cause of death today and that uh, the military is looking into ways to use technology through algorithms to help prevent suicide in the future. While that didn't mention police at all, it shows the complexities and the fact that police are involved in every aspect of our lives today and cross over all kinds of boundaries. Who are the first responders called to attempt suicide cases? It's the police. And uh, dealing with uh, suicide and dealing with uh, mental health issues, this just shows that the police are the ones that are going to have to respond to these types of incidents. And I don't know if there's anyone that doesn't know or hasn't heard of uh, suicide by cop. And uh, it was just odd that you could read this article and not say or not think about the responders that are going to go to uh, these incidents. So that being said, the use of force and the actually reduction in use of force has not been something that's new to departments. One of the biggest cases that the Supreme Court decided in 1985, which seems like a long time ago, but I was still an officer in 1985, was Tennessee versus Gardner, which said that officers could not use deadly force on a fleeing felon 
there must be some type of physical threat to the officer or officers or the general public. With that, many departments were struck with how to deal with the new policies. And many officers said at the time that, hey, this is going to prevent us from being able to, uh, well, it's no longer a deterrent for somebody to run from police, which in the end found out that that was not actually true. Officers were able to continue to make arrests and uh, they were still able to prevent crime and things went on. And it was likened to the uh, the case of uh, Miranda, where police then had to read suspects their rights. And uh, many officers poo-pooed that also by indicating that uh, no one will talk to us now. Well, departments and police officers have adapted since then. And uh, other big prominent issues that occurred actually in, in my police career were uh, use of force in dealing with pursuits. We see today that police pursuits are banned in many jurisdictions and that some jurisdictions, if not all, have limited pursuits and have found alternate methods to deal with them, like using, uh, say, helicopters. So life goes on with the police, but that just gives you an idea of the history behind the use of force. So departments and citizens alike want the same thing, including officers, to uh, protect citizens. And uh, part of that is reducing the use of force uh, when that's possible. So what are we talking about when we say use of force and de-escalation? We're not really talking about like a SWAT situation or police confronting criminals that are shooting at them. Those seem to be no-brainers and the citizens seem to back police in these types of situations. The situations that get hairy with citizen encounters are those that are maybe minor arrests that escalate into the use of deadly force. You know, you watch TV, the media would have us believe that officers use deadly force on a frequent basis. And uh, that's what makes the news, those cases. However, most officers never fire their weapon in the line of duty. In fact, I never fired my weapon in the line of duty. And I guess I have that in common with many of the other officers. And few of the encounters that we have each day are involved with dangerous felons, but that's not how it's normally portrayed. And citizens may say that these type of incidents show a lot of police brutality, and sometimes they do. Police, a lot of times, indicate that, hey, all the person has to do is submit to a lawful arrest. No matter what this is, what the cause of these types of incidents, we've seen recently that it led to riots, like in the case of Ferguson and, and across the United States. It's also led to a lot of distrust of police and harm against police officers themselves, as we've seen in several cases of police officers being ambushed. Regardless of this, it's obvious that officers and citizens should... Uh, there should be more transparency in what officers do and build trust and respect between the officers and the citizens. This might start with training uh, that police can go through for de-escalation. A lot of citizens don't understand what police are sworn to do. They are sworn to arrest criminals and uphold the law and protect the public. Looking at that, sometimes there's nothing about backing down, or maybe there is, and that's the challenge the word de-escalation to officers, a lot of officers believe that that's backing down. And sometimes it may be, it may be a need to back down. But 
that's not the case in, in many situations, but that is the challenge that officers are faced with today. And before we kind of jump into some de-escalation techniques, because I do want to talk about specifically how officers can apply some of these measures to reduce a volatile situation. But before we do that, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about technology. And you had a very two-decade career in law enforcement. I know there was a lot of changes in technology from when you first started to when you retired. But one thing I hear from a lot of officers is how impacted they are by technology in the sense of every incident could potentially be recorded from someone's cell phone. You know, they're equipped now with body cameras that record their every move. Do you have an impression of how officers today feel about that kind of scrutiny? Is it something that's causing them additional stress? Is it a relief to know that whatever happens is being documented? Do you have a sense of where a lot of officers stand on that issue? Yeah, I think there's always a learning curve whenever you uh, add something new. And uh, police are often challenged with new devices. I remember when I first came on and our department had a very simple computer and it uh, you could only type like, I don't know, 25 or 30 characters on there. So you got inventive in your language. It was almost like today's Twitter or your phone texting because you abbreviated everything and you were dispatched with calls through there. So really, technology is not a new thing. It's not a new thing to me. And I think it was coming. Cars used to be the technology. Phones were the original technology. <laughs> they had call boxes, if you remember the history of policing. And leading up to today, now we're talking about body cameras. We're talking about devices that disable. We were talking about police pursuits and how that can be very challenging and damaging to police careers and just to citizens in general. But now they have disabling technologies for that. We have spike strips. We have algorithms that identify <laughs> where crimes are likely to occur. But we've always had like hot spots that police officers knew where to go. This just helps them identify that. And there's always a big learning curve. And I think with body cameras, it's the same thing. The problem with body cameras is it shows does show one point of view and a lot of times you only get a short clip on the news. You don't see what happens before or what happens afterwards. But what you do see is enough for people to make an impression. And people are very impressionable with uh, social media and to have their little snapshot of what's happening. And that can cause a movement, as we saw with many of the uh, citizens leading to distrust of police. And that is not the intent of the average police officer that's out there on the street. They are there to protect citizens, and they do. A lot of officers, whether they start as idealistic, wanting to help people, you hear that a lot, especially when you're hiring people to be police officers, that they want to help people. And I truly believe that so. Or like me, I really wasn't idealistic at the beginning of my career. I didn't go out there to help people. I went out there to do my job. And not that I didn't help people, <laughs> but later on, I became more idealistic because I could see that the work that we do does help people. And that's what I wanted to do in my career also. But it didn't start that way. So the average cop is out there to do the right thing, 
to help people, to protect the innocent. And it gets a little confusing with technology. And a lot of police officers have trouble and difficulty with technology, but it's something that the average cop overcomes in the course of his career. Well, it's like something you mentioned earlier. Police officers have to be very adaptable. Laws are constantly changing. Technology is constantly changing. The policies are constantly changing. What they do today might look completely different than what they do in 10 years. So going off on a, a little bit of a side note here, I think that's a really important characteristic of officers is being someone who is fairly adaptable. We'll be right back after this message. Do you want to start your own business or work for a startup? American Military University has bachelor's and master's degrees to teach you about ideation, marketing, management, and much more. Learn from highly experienced entrepreneurs. Apply today at amuonline.com. Welcome back. We're here with Andy Bell talking about de-escalation techniques. One thing I really want to dive into here, you talked a little earlier about some of the updates in training when it comes to de-escalation measures. And I was hoping that you could get a little specific and talk about some of the de-escalation techniques that you think are sort of the most important ones for officers to really embrace. Can you kind of dive into those? Sure. And uh, you mentioned training. The biggest, I think, efforts that need to be made are the uh, communication between citizens and police. And uh, to better understand those different types of situations that you get involved with. And most of the time, for the ability to de-escalate, you have to understand that how do you get into the situation where you need to use force? And that comes in where... We're putting the law aside and the fact that officers have the cause to do what they're doing, you have to understand the human nature and uh, be able to understand the responses that citizens and police themselves have, like fight or flight. Officers are taught about this fight or flight response, but most of the time in respect to what citizens will do, not in respect to what they you know, what happens to them. And I'll just give you an example. My old department started to add in some physical exercise prior to our firearms training. They'd have us run about a quarter of a mile. For some of us, that was not a big deal. For others, it was a very big deal. And it got a lot of people's adrenaline flowing. Before they went out there and did some cognitive type of exercises by, again, firearm shooting, the same kind of thing you get involved in hand to hand departments used to have a little boxing type of uh, training to show that, hey, you need to understand that you might get punched. <laughs> and uh, we found out later on that a, a lot of the people that became officers were never involved in a fight or an incident or even had to argue or discuss things with people that uh, might have offended them. So what other techniques have you found really useful during your law enforcement career? You had written an article several months ago for us that talked about how sometimes officers just need to, I, I don't know another way to say this, but just kind of be nice about a situation and try to maybe use some empathy and understanding. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Uh, yeah. Leading up to that is, is kind of understanding your situation, understanding what is happening. A lot of times people, uh, they understand what's happening to them, but they're caught up in the moment and they don't really, they're not really aware of what can happen or how to reduce that. And that's just one thing that leads up to being able to discuss the things like we talked about, you mentioned just be nice. It was actually taught originally as something called verbal judo. It's just talking to people in a soft tone or asking for compliance. Even if you're authorized to use force, just be nice. And a lot of times that puts the person you're talking to at ease. And even if you have to put your hands on that person, if you talk to them in a tone of voice, and I've used this many times, where the person is told to relax and, uh, hey, look, this is not a big deal and uh, we don't want to make it a big deal, just relax and uh, this will all be over soon. And that also looks a lot better on the nightly news or on your body camera. But that's just a couple of more things. Another thing that I personally used is... Uh, Sometimes I said before you get caught up in a situation and you don't realize that uh, you need to slow it down and maybe even pause for a minute so that you can actually have time to think and you can maybe de-escalate the situation. Some of the things that I used to do, I'd even ask the person if they mind uh, holding on for a second while I went and got my clipboard out of the car or my coffee, just something to stop what's happening if it looks like it's going in the wrong direction. So there are very few times that require like immediate action. So if you think that things are going in the wrong direction and you need time to think or pause or even call for backup, then uh, those are some of the things that you can do. And I think that's really important for officers to understand is these are people who want to take action. Like that's what they're trained to do. It's There's a lot of times that it's like the focus is on doing something. I think an important message for them and really for all of us is sometimes all you need to do is stop and briefly remove yourself from a situation to kind of clear your head, let that other person also kind of get themselves straightened out a little bit and then revisit the situation. I think that's a really good message. And I think in your article, you actually referred to it as a tactical pause, which I think probably resonates with officers even more. They like that phrase resonates with them. That's really a, a military tactic. They call it the tacticals pause, but it is a pause. Yeah. So I think those are all really good de-escalation strategies during some of these volatile situations so that officers, like you said, don't look bad you know, on camera. I think that it's kind of a little bit of a shame, but also probably a good practice that officers need to be conscious of their perception of what they look like to other people. So all these strategies kind of help them have a better outlook on situations. But one thing I want to talk about, too, there is some concern, I would say, among officers that agencies are focusing too much on de-escalation techniques. And I'm hoping you can elaborate on some of the potential pitfalls of either relying on these or using them or some of the things officers might encounter from using them. Well, I think one of the greatest pitfalls for an officer personally is 
to think that they can solve everything by talking. Not everything is going to be solved by talking, and you're not going to be able to talk everyone into what you want them to do. And sometimes you do have to use deadly force, or they have to use deadly force, or force itself, and they need to realize that. Uh, most horrific thing that could happen is that they think they can talk themselves out of this situation that is a actual deadly force situation and their life or the lives of others is taken. And uh, they just have to realize that this is just part of the tools of the trade. And it's not an excuse for not doing your job either, but it shouldn't be the silver bullet for everything. Police officers need to be situationally aware And remember, I said they can understand is what's more important than being aware of what's happening is understanding and taking action to prevent or de-escalate. And if they can't do that, they need to go into their training that they've been taught in use of deadly force. I think those are also really good points. Just to keep it in perspective, these are all split second decisions too. An officer comes to a situation, you can kind of assess very quickly, is this something I need to talk out or is this something I need to act? And that's happens in a matter of seconds and just a few fleeting thoughts. So I think it's having that training both in the de-escalation techniques, but then also in the action, whether it's use of force or whatnot, to actually keep them safe and keep the public safe. But one thing that I've also kind of heard, and I'm curious to see what you think about it, officers are always being kind of layered with all these trainings, which I think in many cases is really beneficial. So the more training you have generally makes you a better officer. But Do you think that the de-escalation component can lead officers to hesitate or to be, you know, have that moment of like, what should I do here? What's the right policy or how am I going to follow, you know, whatever agency protocol and it could be dangerous for them? Or do you think with enough practice, officers can kind of do that quick, quick assessment? Yes. Some officers might say that, uh, all this training and all of the uh, technology and de-escalation could be dangerous to policing. However, I operated in the same environment and saw that we don't operate as if every incident was your last incident. If that were the case, I probably wouldn't have been a cop very long. Uh, It's more about understanding that you're there to help people and that these techniques are just part of the job. They're tools that you can use, and it's all based specifically on the situations that arise. And most cops uh, realize that that's the situation that they're posed with and the challenges that they're there to do. So the last thing I kind of want to talk about is the role of the agency in teaching de-escalation techniques and making sure that their officers are well-trained in this area. Are there a couple things that you can point to that the agency has responsibility for that they need to do to make sure their officers are properly trained in some of these techniques? Uh, yeah, yeah. First and a, and a big one is that the department should stress that in their training that uh, not only reaction of citizens, but their own reactions what they may be and uh, and not just train officers to react to someone else's fight or flight response. 
Another thing is add role-playing exercises, and many departments do this, that combine both physical exertion and the application of some of these de-escalation techniques that are described. Some departments also support officers that use these techniques and actually ask those officers to share those techniques and scenarios. But a lot of times it's just by word of mouth. So departments should look for those types of incidents that occur where they can create scenarios in training that are based on officers' experiences. And many departments have a document that sometimes they call it use of force reports that must be completed so they know what officers use force. And this is kind of a twofold thing. It's one, they can see just how many officers are using force and what type of force they're using. A lot of times it's said that a small number of officers are the greatest ones that use force as opposed to the majority. Well, this would identify those who are out of place that maybe need to be retrained, but it would also provide some oversight on those who are applying the techniques properly and uh, that should be shared with, with everyone. I think that's really important to talk about the use of data and just kind of tracking some of these information, both for the benefit of departments themselves, so they know, like you said, how many officers are using them, who's using them, but also for the public being transparent about these kind of situations. That's something you touched on a lot earlier about how important communication is with the public to kind of rebuild that trust, especially when it comes to this very high profile, very public issue of use of deadly force. So I think those are all really good pieces of advice for how departments can both track and then train accordingly based on what's happening among their officers. So Andy, I wanted to see, was there anything else about either de-escalation techniques, applying them, or specific ones that should be applied that we didn't really get into or you wanted to talk about? I think you mentioned about transparency and and citizens. Uh, A lot of departments also have like use of force boards comprised of citizens and police. That also helps like educate the public and shed light onto the actions of officers as as you mentioned. But it also adds legitimacy to policing when uh, citizens and police get together to identify, you know, what's happening. They can also identify any training needs that the department might have. Some departments may not have the funding or the manpower to set up these types of boards, but I think that those types of, of boards are not only necessary, are, are great for uh, educating the public on the complexity of policing. Well, I want to thank you very much, Andy, for joining me today. De-escalation is obviously a really, really important topic for today's law enforcement officers, so I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. And also, I want to thank our listeners for joining us this afternoon for this episode of In Public Safety Matters. If you'd like to read more of Andy's law enforcement or military articles, you can check them out on inpublicsafety.com or on police1.com. I'm Leishan Stelter signing off. Be well and stay safe. For more information about our university, visit us at amuonline.com. Thank you for listening. AMU, American Military University.